so this is the eighth week of looking at um, the Minor Prophets, and I think really we've discovered that there seems to be just one major theme that runs through them, um, which is God appears to be quite angry. Um, so again, week number nine, or sorry, week number eight, we'll be discussing that a little bit more. Um, tonight, we are looking at the book of Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is really all about one man. There's one protagonist um, who is mentioned just once, actually. Um, it is all about King Josiah, and as it happens, I know a Josiah, a Josiah who's very dear to me. This is my nephew, Josiah, and in an attempt to make things a little bit more relevant to you tonight, though some of you may not know him, Josiah comes, uh, it sounds like he comes by himself, um, he comes to the morning service um, with his parents, um, but in order to uh, be relevant and um, just for comedic value, really, I would like you to imagine King Josiah as my nephew Josiah. So there he is, and this is his regal picture. Ah, oh. um, and of course, a king does need a crown. So there we go. So tonight we are thinking about this guy, King Josiah. And it was to King Josiah that Zephaniah um, wrote um, his prophecy. But in order to understand the prophecy, we actually need to rewind the clock 300 years um, before um, Josiah comes on the scene. You probably would have heard of um, King David, who was a very famous um, king in Israel, and then his son Solomon, who, um, it is written, was a very wise man. I've always questioned that. Um, but whether he was, w well, he may have been wise, but he was certainly as promiscuous as he was wise, because Solomon had many, many children. Um, and after he died, actually, um, two of his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, fought it out for the kingdom. And so what happened was um, Jeroboam took the north and Rehoboam took the south. And never again was the kingdom of Israel united. So that's the legacy of um, Solomon, very wise man. And then 200 years after this happened, the Assyrian Empire, which was like the, 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 um, the world power at the time, it came in, it invaded um, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, conquered them, and they were no more. And this is where we begin, this is really where we pick up our story. Because as the Assyrian army was closing in on Israel, and as they conquered Israel, it was Josiah's great-grandfather that was on the, on the throne. Um, and they began to basically, you know, they were looking to invade and overtake Judah. So these are the tensions that, uh, that, are, that, um, that the people in Judah are dealing with. They think that basically they're going to be um, overrun by the Assyrian Empire. So comes... Here comes Josiah's grandfather. Now, when I put this keynote together, I was really looking for a picture of my grandfather, but unfortunately I couldn't find one, so I've had to use an avatar instead. My grandfather looked nothing like this avatar. He was Indian for a start. Um, so you'll have to imagine a man that looks precisely nothing like that. But Hezekiah came to the throne. And remember, as Hezek it was whilst Hezekiah was reigning that the Assyrian army came in, destroyed Israel, and now they're beginning to knock at the door in Judah. 
So the question is, what will Hezekiah do? And I would like to ask you what you, you some of you may know even um, a little bit of King Hezekiah because Hezekiah was king of Israel for nearly 50 years. Of course, we can't possibly remember it all. Um, but does anyone want to hazard a guess as to whether Hezekiah was a good guy or a bad guy? A goody or a baddie? Well, well, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> he was he was a good king. Um, he was a very good king. So Israel, um, Judah had forgotten really uh, their identity. They had forgotten Yahweh. They had ditched Yahweh, and they they were worshiping pagan gods. But Hezekiah did away with all of the pagan gods. He destroyed the altars, and he passed the decree that said only Yahweh is to be worshipped in Judah. So what he did when when the chips were down. He gathered the people of Judah back to Yahweh. He rediscovered, he helped Judah rediscover what it meant to be Jewish, what their heritage meant. And I, I don't know whether it was, uh, it's funny how history gets told because you can read this, read about um, you know, this in, in, the script, in the scripture and it says basically Hezekiah was a good king and therefore kind of God stuck up for him and because he destroyed the pagan altars, um, Assyria, could, you know, their, their attacks didn't work because God was with them. And God was with them because Hezekiah did good things. I don't know if that's true. Um, I think, I think what is true is that when people understand their true identity, when people understand what it is that they're fighting for, when they understand their purpose, it's hard to grind them down. And so I think Hezekiah rediscovered what it meant for these people in Judah to be free, what it meant to be followers of Yahweh. But anyway, Hezekiah, good guy, sadly died. Um, after Hezekiah came Josiah's grandfather, and here he is, there he is, King Manasseh, our very own senior leader, Steve. Um, King Manasseh, my dad, Josiah's grandfather. Does anyone want to guess whether Manasseh was a good king? <laughs> he was good, you think? You think you should trust a man leaning on a ledge so casually? The answer is no. And if you take one thing away from this, uh, this um, talk, it should probably be never trust a man casually, surreptitiously leaning on a ledge. Um, Manasseh was just about as bad as bad comes. He reinstated all of the pagan altars. In fact, he, 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 um, he established worship to a god called Molach. And then he introduced child sacrifices to Molach, um, including some of his own children. And this, I think, is where um, Zephaniah gets his name from. Um, Zephaniah actually means, or the, the Hebrew pronunciation... <laughs> I, d I have no idea whether this is the Hebrew pronunciation, but it comes from two Hebrew words, and they are sephen and yah, hidden and God. And so, at a time when all of the children were being slaughtered, there is a theory that sephen yah was hidden by his parents. They, they took him out of the town, they hid him from Manasseh's guys, and they gave him the name hidden by God, or hidden for God. Sephaniah. Um, King Manasseh, the children, um, 
he, he slaughtered the children in sacrifice to Molech, and then um, the children were burned in the valley that became known as Gehenna. So his legacy, it's the legacy of Manasseh that we owe much of the imagery of hell that Jesus used and, uh, and, and Jeremiah uh, used. Um, there was a prophet who stood up and said, this is wrong. And that prophet's name was Isaiah. He was quite a famous prophet. Isaiah stood up and he said, what is going on here? This is, this is wrong. This is utterly wrong. This is not how we should be behaving. Manasseh told him to shut up and get on his bike. He did shut up, but he didn't get on his bike. His bike got around him. But um, he started to write instead. So he wrote the book. He wrote what we, we now have, the book of Isaiah. And we have it because Manasseh told him to stop preaching or stop talking out against him. And then Manasseh um, found Isaiah's writings um, he had him arrested, he had him bound, he had him pushed into a hollowed tree, which his henchmen then chopped in half. And that's how um, Isaiah died. So, Manasseh, a pretty bad king, not good news. But he died. <laughs> good news. Um, and after Manasseh came Josiah's son. And here he is. There he is, King Ammon. And just to explain, um, because this is where my, my little illustration breaks down a little, this is Matthew um, in Wearing the Crown. This is um, King Ammon is played by Matthew tonight. Um, my father, Manasseh, not as bad as Manasseh, is actually Abigail's father. But the illustration kind of breaks down if... Um, if I went with John Dutton, Matthew's dad, wouldn't be so funny. Um, but the good news is that you now know a critical number of people who go to the morning service. So if you ever go to the morning service, um, you are well acquainted with the vast majority of them. Anyway, King Ammon, do you think, I'm not going to ask you again because you, were, you, you disappointed me. I'm going to tell you, King Ammon was a pretty useless king. He was just a bit of a, yeah, he just... He was weak, is what he was. He didn't stand up to, um, to Manasseh's reforms. He just allowed the status quo to continue. And by allowing it to continue, he allowed it to get worse. And in fact, by this time, the Israelites, sorry, the, the Judeans, the Jewish people, had lost their identity again. They weren't worshipping Yahweh in any form. And although... Uh, the people in Judah were afraid of the, the Assyrian Empire overtaking and overruling them. Actually, in all truth, that had kind of already happened because they had lost their distinctiveness. They were no longer Jewish. They were no longer following Yahweh. They were following the pagan gods. What difference was there whether that was under their own flag or the Assyrian flag. So, this is, uh, and after two years, Ammon was assassinated. Um, and after Ammon was assassinated, came our protagonist, um, Mr. Josiah, King Josiah, 
Um, he was a little older than this when he, when he came, became king. He was eight years old when he became king. But the question was, what kind of king would he be? And that was the purpose for Zephaniah writing his prophecy. The question was, would he be a king like Hezekiah, who would show the people back to Yahweh, who would do away with the false gods and remind them what it meant to, to be followers of, of this personal God, this God who had been on a journey with them, rediscovered their heritage? Or would he be a king like Manasseh, who actually kind of preferred the pagan gods and, and took them in the wrong direction? Or would he be a king like Ammon, who just kind of went, you know what, whatever, do what you want. And so that's why Zephaniah was writing. He's essentially writing a polemic against everything that's going on. And he's saying, Zephaniah, look at what's going on. What are you going to choose? Um, now, let me just skip forward. Um, this is the, um, this is the, basically the outline of the book of Zephaniah. Um, this is this is what um, Zephaniah writes to Josiah. He kind of says, "Hey Josiah, you know we've kind of lost our way a bit. We're worshiping these pagan gods." He says, "I I think we should really turn back to Yahweh. It's it's kind of up to you, but um, by the way, God says um, He's going to destroy us if we don't. <laughs> it's like it's up to you though." Um, and and then he talks about the judgment of all people, which is interesting because because of the fact that Assyria is knocking at the door, Assyria coming in from the north, threatening to overtake them, and then they've got the massive empire of Egypt coming in from the from the south, and there's these other um, nations all around threatening them, and Josiah and the the people in Judah must have been terrified of this. But Zephaniah says, he, in his book, you can read it, he basically says, God will destroy all of those nations. They are not your problem. Your problem is God. You've got to turn back to Yahweh. But, you know, it's up to you, whatever. Um, and then he describes um, what happens on the Day of Judgment. And then eventually, actually, he talks about this final redemption. Um, and now what will be really good, and what we've done in previous weeks and I, I don't think it's wrong, what, what I would like to do is be able to say that an easy way to explain all this is with the contextualization of uh, uh, our interpretation of God and the way that God works. So God in this book is painted out as painted to be as a pretty miserable guy. He's, he's basically going to kill all these... He's just like mass genocide. It's really bad news. And we could say that actually it was a really violent time. It was a really, it was kind of what was just done. And therefore, you know, it painted through a context that's, that's so that people could understand. Um, I can't say that for two reasons. Or I don't think I should say that for two reasons. The first is that this is week eight of this series. And I think we've heard that seven times. So I'm trying to find a new approach, a new angle to kind of spin and offer you. Um, and the second is um, this, that the book of Revelation copies this format completely. 
And remember that the book of Revelation, um, which is the last book in, in the Bible, so you'll fi find around here, the book of Revelation, um, people think, was written by John. And John, the apostle John, who hung around with Jesus. So John, who hung around with Jesus, who hung around with the guy who said, you know what, you can sum it up like this, love God, love your neighbor. Who hung around with Jesus, who was always gracious, always kind, always loving. And yet, he wrote a book which copies Zephaniah, and which has ingrained in it an image of a God who doesn't seem as nice as the one Christ followed, or at least as Christ was. So, so what do we do with that? It's really, I think it's really challenging, profoundly challenging. And I think a good way to, to explain it is, well, I think, I think something is true. And the truth, my <laughs> what I think is true, is that both Zephaniah and John, in writing their books, fall grossly short of the truth behind what they're writing. They fall grossly short of managing to articulate God. And the problem, and, and the problem they have is that they are merely men. They are finite men, and they are tasked with, with becoming scribes for an infinite God. God understands situations, I think, more profoundly, and he understands people more profoundly than we ever can. Just in the news um, yesterday, you would have seen that Boko Haram have joined forces with ISA. And then you read stories about the genocide that's happened. And you can't even begin to imagine the... It just, the news just throws out these numbers. Uh, 10,000 people killed here. 30,000 people killed here. There's hundreds of thousands of people displaced. And you, we read it, and we can't even... I can't begin to fathom it. It breaks my heart, and yet but I, I don't understand it. But I believe in a God who knows each one of those 10,000 people, those 20,000, those 30,000, those 100,000 people intimately. I believe in a God who each one of those people, he knows all of their hopes and their dreams and their fears. He knew their potential he loved them like we love the people dearest to us, the people closest to us. And so when God looks out at the state of Judah, a nation who he has journeyed with, a nation who is participating in child sacrifice, you cannot imagine the pain. And so when Zephaniah tries to write it, I think he can only ever fall short. Because how do you begin to articulate the pain that God is feeling? The, the agony. I think, I think God's emotions run deeper. His heart is more pure. What he would choose to articulate is so much more profound than we possibly can. David and Peter have sat over here, um, and I had a conversation uh, with them a couple of weeks ago. They're, they both know a lot about art, 
Um, and and we, were, we were having a conversation about what makes a great piece of art. And they were saying that one of the things that great art can do is begin to articulate something that words cannot. It, it's, it's almost like you, you paint these, these emotions and these themes and these, these ideas because there are no words. There are no words you can give to these, these sweeping um, frenziedness that come through, through culture. And I believe that that's the problem that, that these two guys faced. So, so when it comes to putting words to paper, this is how God feels. I, I, um, I think that I like to imagine uh, Zephaniah standing on the mountaintop, looking down on Judah. And just for a moment, receiving the heart of God, just a glimpse of what God felt. And he would look down and see all of those things happening. Remember, he was growing up um, during the reign of Manasseh. He lived um, during uh, the reign of Amon. So he would have been aware of the child sacrifices. He would have been, you know, pagan rituals were just what happened. There. Zephaniah obviously understood the journey that, that they had been on with, with Yahweh, and yet he knew that Yahweh had been pushed out of the picture. And so on this mountaintop experience with God, he looks down on Judah and he knows this is wrong. There are no words to begin to articulate this. This is just so wrong. It's how, how can we bear this? How can we bear the fact that there are children who are being slaughtered? This cannot do. And God's saying, I, I cannot stomach this. This is too much. I cannot allow this to happen. And how do you write that down? You say that, this cannot be allowed to continue. It will be destroyed. I think that's what Zephaniah is trying to get to. I think that's what John, in writing the book of Revelation, is trying to get to. This is just absolutely abhorrent. It cannot go on. God cannot allow it. It cannot exist in the same realm as God. It is completely and utterly unjust, ungod. It cannot continue. And yet... In that, in that moment when I think God showed him, Zephaniah, his heart, I think it was all of them that got up all at the same time. So the final redemption, I think, is always implicit in what God would, would whisper to, to Zephaniah or to show Zephaniah. And that is this thing. This that is going on, I cannot bear it. I cannot allow it. And yet these people, I love more than you can possibly imagine. These are my children. And there will be a time when I redeem this situation. As awful as this is, I'm going to make something new out of this. I think that heart of God is what Zephaniah has recorded in his letter. And I think that that's what Zephaniah brings to Josiah. And he says, this is the heart of God. What are you going to do? And so that, I think, is the same challenge that we face today. I think um, 
in the same way that John has taken it, because it's, you know, of all the messages, why did John take death and earth? I think he took it because it absolutely somehow manages to grab the heart of God, which is, I cannot bear these things, and yet I will make these things new. I think that that message of Zephaniah endures until today. And so, really I want to finish by, well, presenting you with that challenge. Um, also, by setting you some homework. Um, because this is the message that Zephaniah told Josiah. He said, you've got to turn back to Yahweh. Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to be a Manasseh, an Ammon, a Hezekiah? Are you prepared to go Yahweh's way? And so, now it is our time. It's our time to choose. Are we going to follow Yahweh's way and be influencers in our community? Or are we going to be an Ammon? Are we just going to go, it's all right. <laughs> it actually doesn't matter. There are things at play all the time that I don't want to give you any examples because I don't want to make anyone feel guilty or anything. But, but I think we face these choices every day, don't we? We, we face the choices, are we going to choose God's way or actually are we going to make it up as we go along? Are we going to be an Ammon? Are we going to turn our backs to God, be a Manasseh? Or are we prepared to do the hard thing, to be a Hezekiah? someone who is devoted to God, who spins a different story. And I think that that's a question that we face every day ourselves. I'm going to um, leave a bit of space in a moment, just a, a little bit of silence. And in that silence, I would welcome you to consider um, Zephaniah, Zephaniah's message. Which way will